0: Well, can I tell you one of my least favorite parts of being human? And I know, I mean, it's it's how God made us or whatever. Um, but I almost I almost cringe at the at the thought. I hate that I need. I I, I hate that I need anything. Like like the fictitious corrupt politician Francis Underwood. I've always loathed the necessity of sleep. Like death, it puts even the most powerful men on their backs. I don't want to need. I want to be independent. I want to be in control. I despise asking for help, truly, from, from anyone. Uh, like even just a, a few months ago, we were redoing our, our bathroom, and uh, I was convinced I didn't need anyone's help to take the four foot by eight foot mirror off of the wall. Has anybody here ever lifted a mirror that huge by themselves? I have for like two seconds, right? Before it crashed all over the floor. And yes, seven years bad luck, but at least I didn't ask anybody for help. I hate it. I mean, it it feels like an admission of, of weakness. It feels like a failure already to ask for help to admit my need. I'd much rather pull myself up by my own bootstraps and then go off and, and walk on water. And then we hear those words that were just read. Thanks a lot, Patrick. And we hear them, and, and, I, and I know it deep within, right? I know what it says, and yet it's so hard for me to admit. And, and so if there's, if there's anything we get from our time together this morning... And this may sound a little bit self serving, but if there's anything that we're going to take away with us, let it be this, and let this be my confession. I need your faith. And of all the things that I need, this might be the one thing that I need most from you. I I need your faith. And you need mine. And the people sitting around you need yours, and you need theirs. Because we've talked about this over and over, right? From Hebrew, from these words that according to this book, right? That you and I, we are just a few bad decisions or a few difficult circumstances away from abandoning Jesus. We, we've seen that over and over again here. And truthfully, it's, it's one of my biggest fears, I mean, he he just told us, right, a couple weeks ago that we are to to run this race with endurance. But what if I get tired of running? What if I get bored or distracted or just disillusioned? What if I quit? I need your help. This isn't an exaggeration. I'm not just trying to exaggerate it to prove a point. I need your faith. For I am convinced that one of the biggest differences, I'm convinced both from from scripture as well as from experience, that one of the biggest differences from the person who holds on to their faith and the person who lets it go are the people surrounding them, the relationships within which they find themselves. And kids, students, we, we talk about this a lot with, with you in particular, right? We, we talk about the fact that studies show students in particular that, that one of the biggest indicators of whether or not you will hold on to your faith when you head off to college is whether or not you have a, what's called, according to some research, a, a, a sticky web of relationships of people of all different age groups sort of holding on to you as, as you go. I mean, it's why we want students and and families worshiping together. It's why we, we want kids and adults to serve together and to play together. It's why we do things like, you know, recognizing and celebrating fifth graders and seniors and kids. I need your faith. You are not the church of tomorrow. You are the church of right now, and we need your faith And you need ours. One of the most challenging books I've ever read is called Dangerous Calling. Uh, It's a book for pastors um, that really sort of outlines, I mean, if you're ever curious about maybe a window into why so many of us tend to be so messed up sometimes, this would be a really fun read. He's convinced that one of the biggest reasons is because so many of us are loners. And and listen to what he says. And this isn't just for pastors. This is for all of us. But listen to what he writes. He says, For much of my Christian life and a portion of my ministry, I had no idea that my walk with God was a community project. I had no idea that the Christianity of the New Testament is distinctly relational from beginning to end. I understood none of the dangers inherent in attempting to live the Christian life on my own. And it almost destroyed his church, his family, and his soul. And we pastors, I mean, just think about it. We pastors, we are paid to be good. Some of you who know me well are thinking, I think Nathan's overpaid. (laughs) You're you're probably right. But, I mean, think about that. I get paid to to pray and to to read the Bible and to, to be holy. And I am at risk. And so are you. Need your face. But don't take my word for it. I mean, all, all of Hebrews 12 has been about this, this difficulty of, of running with endurance, right? Of continuing on in this walk with, with, with Christ. And, and two weeks ago was about our role, right? And the struggle of, of running. Last week was about God's role in disciplining us to run well. And this week is about the role of the community that we that we train together. That we we need each other. And he gets to his main idea of this section in particular, right there in verse 15. We'll we'll start there. It's a quick little phrase, but I think it's so important. I think it it sort of is the structure for all of what he's saying in in this section. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He, the preacher commands these believers at this ancient church to take responsibility for the faith of the people sitting around them. That's what he says, right? It's, it's your job, he's saying, to make sure that no one drifts, that no one quits, that no one loses the race. Not, not your pastor's job, not... Not just your the elders job, not just for the people that you like, or not all, even just for your own benefit. The people sitting around you, the people in your community group, we need your faith. Which kind of flies in the face of just about everything we tend to think about church, doesn't it? In fact, in some ways, if, if you're not a Christian and you're, you're here sort of exploring, you know, checking it out, uh, you might hear these words and think, yeah, I mean, that'd be great, wouldn't it? A community that loves each other and cares for each other like that. But let's be honest, it's not often what we see within the church, is it? We're a consumeristic bunch, aren't we? We go to church for what we can get, not for what we can give. We go focused on the benefits for our our own faith. Not that that's unimportant. But what if instead we actually put the needs of others ahead of our own? What kind of community would that create? What if we took our job description seriously? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What would that even look like? I think he tells us two things that my faith needs from yours. I need your faith to fight for my faith, and I need your faith to watch out for my faith. Let's talk about these. I need your faith to fight for mine. Will you, will you fight for me? Look what he says in verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That word for strive there. Um, the, the Greek carries with it uh, an idea of urgency, of necessity, of, of something that's worth chasing down. In fact, in other contexts, that exact same word is, is translated as persecute. That's why I, I like the word fight. I think it conjures up the right image. That This is, this is something of, of deep necessity, that we need to fight for these things. And he, and he lists two, right, in particular. First, he says fight for peace which is kind of an ironic image, right, when you think about it, fighting for peace, and yet we all know peace doesn't just happen, right? Especially not in the church. And you might hear those words like, especially not, well, why, why would that even be true? I mean, why, why especially not here? Why is it hard? Why, what's unique about the church that makes it difficult? Well, well think about when these words were first spoken, Okay, so so go back in time two thousand years. Imagine you know, Jesus had just come on the scene and the birth of the church. And truly, when that happened and the church was born, this was the first time in history. And you can you can look this up, right? You can do some research here. Truly, the first time in history in which people from all kinds of different backgrounds and religious histories and ethnicities and races and nationalities—it was the first time—men, women, young, old, rich, poor, slave, free jew gentile began spending time together on purpose it's the first time worshiping together sharing meals with one another serving each other i mean we live in a pluralistic world for the most part we are used to diversity to some extent this is brand new for them of course they were going to have to fight for peace I mean, imagine being in that setting the first time with all these different kinds of people. And yet, this is the kind of community that Jesus creates. Fight for peace, he tells them. And peace, it isn't just, you know, getting along with one another. I mean, sometimes we, we think that we have peace when the reality is we're just with a niche group of people who would like each other anyway, right? Because anymore, I mean, that was 2,000 years ago, but what happens now so often in church is that we, we really just end up self-selecting, don't we? I mean, for example, if, if, you, if you attend here for a while, uh, you may at some point realize that you just really don't like me. It's happened before, I know, shocking, right? But it has. Or, or you just don't really like the person sitting beside you the person in your community group. And for some of you, when that happens, when it gets awkward or difficult, you're going to run. You've done it before. You're going to do it again. That's a luxury we can afford. They didn't have that luxury. I mean, think about that. They had no choice. They were it, and the people around them were persecuting. They had no choice but to fight for peace within their community. They didn't have have any options. And and imagine what that would do for them, right? Causing them to grow, forcing them to learn from each other, forcing them out of their comfort zones to become more and more the people that God had created them to be. That's the kind of peace, frankly, only Jesus can give that, right? Right? Not not merely the absence of conflict, but the presence of love. And how did Jesus say that people would be able to recognize us? By our love. You see, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is truly the only thing that can create this kind of community. I think that's why it was the first place where this kind of community was even able to be formed, because the gospel tells us a lot of things right but two in particular when it comes to our relationship it tells us that every person you meet is so loved that god was willing to give his life through his son for them and that we can be his sons and daughters that means there's no room for insecurity in us and there's no room for us to mistreat or ignore anyone anymore and yet at the same time the gospel also tells us right that you and i we were so broken so messed up so sinful that jesus had to die in order to save us but that was, that was the only option for us to be rescued. We're that messed up. Which means there's no room for self-righteousness, arrogance, unforgiveness. I mean, only the gospel can create this kind of peace. And so he says, you'd better fight for it. And my faith needs it. And for those of you who are here, again, who, who aren't Christians, I mean, so often you see just the opposite from us, don't you? Maybe you think of us as, as typically angry and, and unloving. We just say, I'm sorry that we've blown it. It shouldn't be that way. And if you are a Christian, ask yourself, as I've been asking myself this week, am I part of the problem or part of the solution? Those are really just the only two options, I think. And how would the people closest to you answer that question about you? I mean, think about that. Do you you complain or do you encourage? Are you self-righteous or self-forgetful? Are you judgmental or grace-filled? Will you quickly leave when things get tough or will you stay and work it out? Are you a consumer or a contributor? Our faith needs you to fight for peace. There's a part in the book Um, the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings series, uh, where, where the elves and the dwarves like team up to fight against the Dark Lord. And everybody knows, right, it's common knowledge, dwarves and elves don't get along, right? Everybody knows that, right? I'm kind of a nerd, but that's common knowledge, okay, just for the record. They don't get along, but here's something worth fighting for. But as soon as they do, it doesn't take long at all. For them to start fighting, arguing, calling curses down upon each other. Until finally somebody there who's wise enough to know that they they better get along. He says he says to them, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. Because God delights in our peace, and the enemy delights in our disunity. For it is a remarkable thing when you see people who have no business together, who in any other circumstances wouldn't possibly even be in the same room together, loving one another anyway, serving each other, worshiping together. That's that's the church. So will you fight for my faith? Will you fight for peace? Of course, that's not all he tells us, even right here. Peace isn't, isn't enough, right? It's not all just about loving each other and getting along. It needs needs more than that in the community. He tells us to fight for holiness. And literally, holiness means that we are set apart, that those of us who are in Christ have been set apart for him. It's the idea of, of wholeness, right, of being made complete, that which we long for. And he says, right, verse 14 again, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You want to see Jesus, holiness is a prerequisite. Now, the good news here is that because of what Jesus has done, that God declares us holy. And so truly, for for you, even in this moment, if you are a Christian, God looks at you, and he calls you holy. You. Right now, in this moment. Me? Really? Really? Because the truth is, I mean, we know better, don't we? And so does God. So even even though he calls us holy, he also tells us that we need to strive for holiness. That we need to fight for it. Theologians sometimes call this sanctification, right? The process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And you know, I'd really like to meet Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to like sit down, have a face-to-face conversation? probably not going to happen anytime soon. And yet, in a very real sense, we get a glimpse of him in each other. And the more that we live like him, the more others get to see him in us. Listen, the the way you live your life paints a picture for all of us. I mean, no matter, no matter what that looks like, right? It could be a very positive or a very negative picture, but we're all p- painting a picture. Your neighbors see it, your kids, your, your friends, your church. And we really need to see Jesus. I need your holiness. Your roommates need it, your coworkers. You might be the best representation of Jesus some people will ever get you an old pastor once said the greatest need of my people is my own holiness that's not just for pastors that's that's for all of us for we all long to see christ as i was writing this this week i couldn't help but think of of nancy Nancy and her husband Reed—they've been coming here for about a year or so. Um, but shortly after I met Nancy, she was diagnosed with cancer, and, and you know she's still in the thick of it, right? She's gone through all this this treatment, all the all the yuck, and she's doing great, but still right right there in the midst. And so, you know, periodically, right, I, I try to be a a good pastor, right, and call her or visit her to try to encourage her. And and Pastor Tim has spent a lot of time with her trying to do that as well. And and I know he'd say the same, but every time, you know, I I try, I call, I want to encourage her, right, Nancy? I I, I try so hard. And I always am the one who ends up encouraged, every single time. Because I see such faith in the midst of such terrible suffering. And when I see that, it makes me think, maybe maybe there really is something worth holding on to. I see her holiness. And Nancy, I, I need your faith. Thanks. I need it. I mean, have you ever experienced that in another person? Where you, where you walk away from a person or, or someone in a, in a situation, and you think, it feels like I've just sort of been with Jesus. So before we move on again here, ask yourself, do people see Jesus when they see me? do they? Are you fighting for holiness in your life? We we grow in holiness by praying, reading our Bibles, living in accountability, being part of a church. All these things. And and when I I look at Nancy, I want to keep following Jesus because I see him in her and I like what I see. What if we all look like that? I need you to fight for my faith. I need you to fight for holiness. Well, there are good things that we need to fight for. But there are also, he mentions them here, a couple of bad things that we need to watch out for. I need your faith to watch out for mine. Two things here as well. Look what he says first. It basically, says... Watch out for, for contagious complacency. You see that in fi- verse 15 as it continues. He says, see to it, and then, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now, when I first read that, I, I assumed that he was talking about bitterness in the sense of resentful anger, right? And I began thinking of that most times, what it would look like to talk about bitterness, and bitterness is a, is a struggle for all of us. But actually, the more I studied it, I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. In fact, I think he's talking about the taste of bitterness that can so quickly spread throughout a community and destroy it. Well, good grief, Nathan. Where do you get that? Well, when he uses that phrase, root of bitterness, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 29. It's the only other place that those images come up. So let let me read what it says in Deuteronomy 29. He says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God. To go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I think he's saying, Watch out for bitter tasting people. Watch out for an attitude in in yourself, in me, in those around us. Watch out for an attitude that says, I'm okay. I'm fine. Even even in my son. that, That ignores blind spots and refuses to repent. I think what he's saying is, beware of people who think they're okay. Beware of those who assume that they have it all figured out. For that is the definition of complacency. And it is a contagious poison. And it's hard because everything around us says we're okay, right? You're fine. Try your best. It's okay. Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And we assume God's grace. And when we assume his grace, we belittle it. And the longer you and I belittle his grace, the more we come to believe that we don't uh, don't really need it all that much. And this attitude in a community of faith is a disease. By by quoting the Old Testament here, he's he's reminding them and reminding us what this disease did to the Israelites. We, We see it, right? It destroyed them. And he doesn't want to see the church repeat the same mistakes. So ask yourself, how do I taste? What's my flavor? I mean, are we on the lookout for this kind of contagious complacency? Again, in ourselves as, as well as in the community, are we watching out for it? I mean, for example, if you, if you almost always assume that everyone else is the problem, there's a good chance that you're the problem. That you're, you're blind to your own stubbornness. And your attitude will spread like bitter poison. And if you see that disease in others, if you see it in me, call me on it. In inappropriate ways, of course, right? With humility in the context of, of trust and love within, within relationship, of course. All of those things. And yet, speak up. And give the people in your life permission to call out your blind spots as well. Let them know that it's okay to call you out. I need your faith. Watch out for the bitter taste of contagious complacency. Okay, one more. Finally, he says, Watch out for foolish indulgence. Just look at Esau, he says. So see to it, and then on, he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay. What? What's going on there? Well, commentators debate together on, on what is meant, particularly by the idea of sexual immorality in that context. Um, don't really know what to think because there's no story in the Old Testament about Esau being sexually immoral, okay? So it's not part of his story yet. That's what it says there. And so some say that it's just sort of used as a general term for his, his wholesale rejection of God. Others say it's, it's in there because uh, by this point in Israel's history, they just assume that Esau was the worst of scoundrels and guilty of everything, Okay. So, so either way, okay, it could, it could mean different things. But the big idea here, what, he, what he's getting to, the, the, the chief thing that Esau did that the author's pointing out is that he sold his birthright for a meal. That's, that's a big idea right right here, what's, what's happening. Okay, so what does that even mean, right? Um, have you heard this story before? Okay, so, so Jacob and Esau, you can read about it in Genesis, particularly in Genesis 25, but Jacob and Esau were brothers They were grandsons of the patriarch Abraham and their twin brothers. And Esau was born first, just a little bit. But in a a culture like theirs, right, that meant that as the firstborn son, the majority of the inheritance, the blessing, the, the power, the privilege, the prestige, all went to Esau. But it was Jacob... Who was the father of Israel? I mean, that became his name, right? Israel later on. So, what happened? Well, there's a lot of things, certainly, that, that play out here. Uh, but at least in the short term, Jacob was a bit of a trickster, and Esau was foolishly indulgent. And so, it kind of happened like this in the, in the story. Uh, there's a, a time when Esau was off on a hunting exibi- exhibition. Apparently, it didn't go very well because he comes back and he's starving. He's absolutely hungry, and Jacob has been making soup. And so, you know, it's all smelling delicious and good, and he's so, 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 so hungry, and Esau walks into the house and says, Hey, brother, can I, how about a little soup? Can, can I, I'm, I'm starving. I'm about to die here. Would you just give me a little soup? And Jacob, I mean, they've never really got along, you know, no soup for you kind of saying. like like maybe maybe on second thought on second thought he saw you can maybe have a little soup if if you give me your birthright i will give you this warm hot succulent bowl of stew if you give me all of the rights of being the firstborn child well that sounds like a good deal and so esau says yes In that moment, he trades that which is lasting and immense in its value for something as simple as this momentary gratification of a bowl of stew. And the author of Hebrews is looking at them and he's looking at us and saying, we're all like Esau. Or at least have the potential to become very much like him. Foolishly indulgent. Come on, are you kidding? This is ridiculous. A story like this, I'd never do something like that. Yeah, I know. Me neither, of course. And yet I would bet that every one of us here, for every one of us, there is something that we would be tempted to trade it all in for if we only had the chance. Probably not a bowl of soup. But what would it be? What would you trade Jesus for? Well, nothing, of course. I love Jesus. Think about it. Seriously, someone sat down with you later on this afternoon and began offering you thing after thing. What would it, what would it be that would finally get you to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe not so much with Jesus. What would it, what would it take? I mean, most of us have a breaking point, don't we? A point in which we would be very likely to sell out. How about success? Riches, good health, safety for your kids, happiness, leisure, comfort, sex, beauty, talent. What would be the price? Now, maybe we wouldn't sell out in one fell swoop like Esau. We don't need the whole bowl of soup, do we? Just one bite. And another. And another. And before we know it, I'm left on my own, I'm afraid I'll choose the soup. Because I know myself, I know it lives in here. By myself, I'm afraid that one day, yeah, something else is going to have that much appeal in my life, that much strength to be able to say, yeah maybe not so much with Jesus trading that which is of infinite value for something that is absolutely fleeting would be the first time watch out for foolish indulgence watch for it in my life and in yours I need your faith and it takes a whole community to believe and to keep believing that Jesus actually is better, that he actually is worth holding on to. And this is the community that he, he creates through his death and resurrection. For although he, he is the one, right, who, who calls us to fight for these things and to watch out for these things, at the same time, we know that he is the one who's already fought the battle, right? That he has won the battle and that he is watching out for us now seated at the right hand of, of God the Father, and while none of that gets us off the hook, not even in the least, it gives me so much hope, knowing that this task that he's given to you and to me that we are not on our own, and that he will continue to, to do the work in us and through us. I read a fascinating something fascinating this, this past week about redwood trees. Um, I, I love trees. I mean, just the the beauty, the power, the majesty, right? Um, I'd love to one day visit the Redwoods in California, right? Just think about this. Over 300 feet tall, some of them as old as 2,000 years. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And I always sort of assumed, right, or maybe I just didn't even think about it that much, that with a tree that size, right, that its strength would come from its, its root system, right? And I imagined that they were really, really deep and really, really far out, outstretched. But what I read actually is that's, that's not true at all. In fact, relative to their size, their, their roots are pretty shallow. They only go about 6 to 12 feet under the surface. I just think about that, right? What on earth is holding up a tree 300 feet in the air for 2,000 years? Well, it's because the roots look kind of like this. They're all intertwining and interconnected. And some say that it almost looks as if they're holding on to each other, and that is where they get their strength. Not from themselves. Not not from how deep their roots go or how wide stretched they are, but how interconnected they are with others. And when I read that, I just I thought, this is, this is what, what he creates. This is what Jesus has done for us by giving us this thing, this, this strange but amazing thing called the church. And what a beautiful picture of, of what this life ought to be for us. Because honestly, I mean, none of us are particularly strong, are we? I'm weak. I know how shallow I am. And yet together, we can find our strength rooted deep within this God who loves us, who saves us through his spirit at work within us. I mean, friends, that's, that's why we're here, isn't it? I mean, it's why we gather together every Sunday. It's why we've done so, why we've lasted as an organization, right, for 2,000 years and why we, can, we will continue to do so until Jesus returns. I need your faith. And you need mine.